You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, welcome to Pharma Salon. This is your host, Vivian Juder Frankel. We feature discussions on regulatory, policy, compliance, and business issues specifically for the compounding pharmacy industry. The podcast covers topics related to 503As, 503Bs, hospital pharmacies, and veterinary. I hope you'll tune into all of our discussions as you never know when and where an idea will germinate that will take your business to the next level. As many of us have, I've been discussing USP 800 for what feels like years now, which is saying something because I've not been in the compounding pharmacy space for that long. The conversations range in topics from getting ready for USP 800 to budgeting for it to why we even have it, as well as the risk of working with hazardous drugs for workers. I was speaking with Lou DiOrio about this series, and he suggested we start with a bit of history and then dive into the challenges that span the scope of implementing full compliance. This is a long episode full of really great information. So get a cup of coffee, some comfortable headphones, and let's begin. Hi, I'm Lou DiOrio. I'm the uh, president and principal of LDT Health Solutions. We are a medication safety and quality management consultancy based in New Jersey. And I'm here to talk to you today about USP 800 and some of the issues around compliance to that very broad general chapter in the USP. The first question that we get asked most often about compliance to USP is, where did this come from? A lot of the resistance that we see or, or the anger that we see in the, in the marketplace or in the community of pharmacists that we deal with is that people kind of think that this came out of nowhere. I would push back on that and say, no, you know, USP 800 is really just USP's attempt to codify and to bring in several pieces of existing science, existing documents that had been rattling around for a very long time. Okay, so, so let, me, let me interrupt you there with a question. Everybody's been talking about USP as long as I've been around, which is just a couple of years, USP 800. And we talked about it being a labor issue. And I've talked about this with other people. It's all about the protections of the workers with the hazardous drugs. And I know that there's been a lot of studies on some of the things that can happen that have negative impacted people like pregnancy and other things. So how did it start to begin with and why has it taken so long to actually move forward? So at its center, USP 800 really comes from, if you had to point to a single document beyond the chapter itself, it would be a September of 2004 CDC workplace bulletin that was sent out. It was a NIOSH alert, and it's titled Preventing Occupational Exposures to Antineoplastics and Other Hazardous Drugs in Healthcare Settings. And that is a pretty comprehensive document. It's 60 pages long. It is still available on the web. You can still get it from the CDC or the, or the NIOSH website. And what's interesting there is that it rattled around since 2004. The initial release of or the publication of USP 800 was February of 2016. So there's a large gap in there. And all of the legal nonsense and legal wrangling aside and all of the inactivity or inapplicability of the application of the chapter and all of that stuff aside, if you take USP 800 out of the equation, we are still left with existing OSHA and NIOSH requirements for your employees. And so the problem is that everybody 
the jumping off point for whatever reason, and maybe because it's the most expensive piece of compliance, everybody gets hung up on the physical plant changes that have to happen in order to get you fully compliant. So we prefer to think of it in terms of the three Ps, right? People, places, and practices. And everybody focuses on the place. But there are requirements for the people, right? How your employees act Mm -hmm. and the processes, the policy and procedure and the training that they need, even if you could give them magically tomorrow, you could give them a place that was fully compliant. But because... Yes. No. So let me back up a little bit because I did talk to people, a lot of hospitals. Mm -hmm. And like you said, what they were talking about is the training from everybody, from the janitors to the nurses to, I think, to even the disposal people outside, right? Correct. And then one of the things that you mentioned earlier is this is not just a compounding pharmacy issue. This This is, is, yeah, right. This is not a pharmacy thing. This is Mm -hmm. not a pharmacy problem. Anytime a title of any document says drug in it, every hospital administrator, every inspector immediately goes running to the pharmacy. That's not what this is about. What's very unique about this chapter and what's very unique about you covering this is most of the topics that you cover have to do with compounding. Mm -hmm. USB 800, if you simply look at the title, it is titled Hazardous Drugs, the Handling in Healthcare Settings. It covers the entire life cycle of the drug. So from the time it hits your receiving area or your loading dock, through the storage, through receipt, through handling, through compounding, through the patient experience, wherever that happens, whether it happens for community pharmacies, it could happen at home, home care folks, it could happen through visiting nurse, through waste hauling, until it goes back out the other side of your business in a yellow bag, that is USP 800. It's not the compounding of these drugs. That's part of it. So people, place, processes. Right. And so it's the entire life cycle of the drug. So what we do when we do an assessment, and I would encourage your, your viewers to do the same thing, is literally walk the path of an HD drug from the time it hits your loading dock or your UPS, you know, when you open that box from UPS or from the plastic tote from your distributor, mm-hmm. trace it through your entire organization. Now, in larger hospitals, larger organizations, that those pathways tend to be more complex, but you need to do that so that you can understand all the people that you need to bring together and all the people that it's going to impact. So we work with, you know, our clients range from individual sole proprietors, single person compounders, all the way up to and including pharma. And pharma, you know, pharma is excluded because pharma is not technically a healthcare facility. So the largest organization that this would apply to would be a large health system. And among our clients, we have some very large health systems, mm-hmm. 16, 20 hospitals, six, seven, $800 million drug budgets. So there's a lot of stuff going on. In one of them in particular, they understood early on that a holistic approach was going to be needed. So the planning team for the compliance to USP 800 was not made up exclusively of pharmacy personnel. It included janitorial personnel, nursing, pharmacy, medicine. It included HR, risk management, nurse training, as well as pharmacy. So Mm -hmm. it impacts all of those folks. So all of those folks need to know what goes on. And the 
training and the materials and the approach varies from department to department. So you really need to drill down into your business, lay it next to the chapter itself and figure out how to close those gaps. But you're not going to be able to do that unless you've gone through the whole process and figured out where your exposures are, so to speak. Okay. So where are we at? Because I'm hearing a lot of things. Uh, you know, obviously I talk to mostly compounding pharmacies, but I do talk to hospital pharmacists as well. We've talked about doing sessions and classes and courses on hazardous drug management. So where are we at in terms of the adoption? I know the compounding pharmacies, from what I hear, seem to be stuck on the building facilities. So I'd like to hear a little bit of why that's just such a challenge. But also, as you mentioned, the other areas are they, have they been adopting it? Have there been challenges? Has there been pushback? What's going on in the hospital setting? One more question. When the hospital is dealing with the compounding pharmacy, because I know that the hospital has to go through qualifications for both the, I know the 503Bs and I'm assuming the 503As that they address, are they also evaluating their compliance with the USP 800? You mean for medication that they outsource, for stuff yes. that they're not producing directly? Yeah, I mean, there's as many answers to that as there are people in the process. I think to, to answer your first question about the physical plant piece, let's use some sweeping stereotypical characterizations of hospital pharmacy practice. So for the pharmacies, you know, the joke is that every pharmacy is wedged into the basement of a hospital between the morgue and the loading dock. And I wish I could tell you that even in newly designed facilities that we're asked to assist with those designs, that that's no longer the case, but it is. So now hospital administrators are actually paying the price literally and figuratively for that sort of approach over the last 30 years, because the first and most expensive piece of this compliance, and it doesn't matter if it's a hospital pharmacy, a retail pharmacy, a physician practice, an AIS or a satellite, OSHA demands, and this is, you know, it, it's also contained in USP 800, but OSHA demands that the device you use to compound in the biological safety cabinet or the containment isolator that you're using, or in the case of non-sterile compounding, the CVE, the containment ventilated enclosure, be ducted to the outside world. It needs to go to the building's exterior. Additionally, regardless of whether you're creating a true clean room or if you're able to practice within a segregated compounding area, which is defined in USP 797 and in 800, that room still needs to be exhausted to the outside world because going back to that original OSHA document that I referenced, the alert, this room needs to be a containment room as defined by OSHA, which means you need at a minimum a negative pressure across the doorway and you need it to be of good general ventilation. Now, USP 800 took the alert language and really put a finer point on it. And that's where we get those numbers that people are terrified about that turn out to be the most expensive piece of this equation. The single most difficult parameter to hit is that negative 0.01 to negative 0.03 inches of water column of pressure into this room. And I got to tell you, I mean, as I said, our clients are big and small. Without designing the room from the ground up, without giving it its own ventilation system and air handling system, trying to branch it off of a larger hospital or trying to branch it off of a commercial space that your community pharmacy may be renting from, it is extremely difficult, mm -hmm. extremely, because it is not 
you know, everybody laughs when we kind of think about this, right? In America, the attitude is if one is good, two is better. This is not one of those times. You need to stay in that range because what we're seeing now and a lot of our remediation work on our consultancy is in cases where compounding spaces, whether it's a physician's office or a hospital or a retail compounder, and it could be positive or negative. If it's overpressurized, the room is drawing in all sorts of contaminants and little nasties from the interstitial spaces around the room. So overpressurization of these rooms is not a good thing. So you really need to stay in that range in order to do what, from a compounding perspective, is you know, create that state of control that USP talks about or that people like Lloyd Allen and I talk about when we write and Castango and all those other people that are in the conversation. You really need to stay in that range because there's no other way to keep your arms around this process unless you stay in that lane. Mm -hmm. As far as physical plant, the other stuff is, you know, that's what everyone focuses on, right? What are my walls? What do my walls need to be made of? What does my ceiling need to look like? What kind of flooring do I need? And that's, we refer to that as, you know, that's the most visible part of the compounding space, but that's not the sexy part. The sexy part is what goes on above the ceiling. And that's the stuff that people like, even somebody like me that does this every day knows the least about because we're not tradesmen. We're not generally carpenters and plumbers and electricians, and we're certainly not HVAC and exhaust experts. So when you build a team, in addition to all those professional people that I mentioned earlier, you need to bring your buildings and grounds people, your engineers and your architects into this conversation and really describe to them the parameters that are laid out in the chapter and all three chapters, actually, because there is so once this litigation with the BUD nonsense is over and all of the chapters get finalized or get republished, there is no way that anyone, myself included, is going to be able to answer a question about compounding without referring to multiple chapters. I guess I have two thoughts. One is I'm always hearing the debate between to revamp versus just buy a new space. And mm -hmm. we should maybe talk about that. But then if this is new and complicated and everybody is specialized, then who should be quarterbacking all of this? The technical answer is that the chapter has a requirement for a most responsible person. And that, and with all due respect to ASHP, ASHP has written and has described what this most responsible person should look like or should be. And their premise is that it should be a pharmacist. Personally, I disagree. Okay. There should be a most responsible pharmacist in the pharmacy department to handle the pharmacy piece. However, my experience is that if you put a pharmacist in any sort of healthcare situation, they're not going to have the reach or the ability, or as we say in New York, the juice to affect changes in the HR department or in the nursing department. So you really need somebody who's either in risk management, legal, or in administration to really quarterback all of the things that have to go on inside the individual departments that collectively become your holistic plan. So that's number one. Number two is that we have worked with as, you know, as consultants, as med safety consultants, we've worked on teams with green belts and we've worked on teams with time and motion folks. And we all play a role, but it, it really needs to be a global, multifaceted, broad-based plan. Otherwise, you are definitely going to fall short. And the problem is 
that CMS has weighed in and not specific to USP 800, but there are no less than three CMS documents that say anything less than full compliance with all chapters that relate to compounding will violate a facility's conditions of participation. So simply said, if you don't comply with 800, 795, 797, and if you're doing nuclear in some cases, you know, the 825, if you're not in full compliance with those chapters, you won't be able to build Medicare and Medicaid. And I don't know a modern hospital in any state, and we're national, I don't know any hospital that could survive more than a day or so without the billing train leaving the station every day. So who is doing the inspecting for compliance with the USP stuff? So the way I heard that is, where's the USP police? Yes. There is no USP police for 797 or for 800. But that's not to say that people are not out there asking questions. So the first or the deepest dive that we saw in the field, obviously, was your particular local board of pharmacy. And I can tell you that how they go about that is all over the map, but the ones that have done the deepest dive have issued checklists. There are states like my home state of New Jersey that have issued timeframes and have asked for compliance plans from the pharmacy perspective. Because again, a board of pharmacy only is in that pharmacy lane. That's out there. Then there's the voluntary. I think the biggest or the largest way you're going to see this manifested in the field are the voluntary accreditation bodies. And we know for a fact that ACHC, the Joint Commission in particular, the Joint Commission has a document that your listeners can go and download. It's called the Hospital Accreditation Checklist or HAP for short. And that one is interesting because it takes what their interpretation of the USP requirement for compounding, hazardous is included in there. It lays it next to their accreditation standard. But what makes it really valuable is in the right-hand column, they bridge it over to the CMS requirement. And if you are unfortunate enough to go through one of those, the minute it triggers a CMS COP, Conditions of Participation, trigger, they notify CMS. So we've had, um, wow, it's going on four years ago. We had a hospital in Maine that had one of these Joint Commission audits the following week. They were entertaining both CMS and Maine State Medicaid. So that's that's not a good week. That's not how you want to spend your time. So those folks are out there. Certainly, if an employee feels wronged in any one of those departments that I spoke about, nursing, pharmacy, housekeeping, engineering, they certainly can pick up the hotline to OSHA and make a complaint. And OSHA has and does continue to make visits. Now, the problem with OSHA coming in is they generally don't leave without dropping you a fine. And so that's not a good day. So there are people looking at it, but do they wave a flag coming through the door and say, hi, I'm here to police USP 800? Absolutely not. They want to talk about hazardous drug. Then when you talk about the top of the food chain and you talk about if a hospital is visited by the Food Drug Administration, and we know to date there's about 40 hospitals and hospital-owned healthcare providers that have been visited by FDA. They never say USP 800. 
They rarely say the phrase hazardous drug. They use the vernacular highly potent drugs, and they talk about cross-sensitivity and mix-ups, and then they focus on your exhaust and your lack of negative pressure in your compounding spaces. So you know what they're referring to, but they never say it in so many words. So, And I don't know why that's their policy currently. Perhaps they don't want to get into channel conflict with a board of pharmacy, but the FDA will test that on you. Join us for the Compounding Pharmacies Grand Salon. Talks on leadership, inspections, quality, and environmental monitoring. Live discussions are October 5 through 8, and presentations are on demand. CE accredited for pharmacists and technicians. For more information, go to www.pharmasalon.com compounding. Okay. Because that was my question, kind of what I was thinking about is the FDA, but they're not going to come in and say, you're not USP 797 or USP 800 clock. You're not compliant with one of those things, but they are going to come in and say that, well, this is a problem and this is a problem. The FDA will come in and the FDA will do some basic tests right, mm-hmm. when they walk in. And the first thing they'll do is they'll knock on the door and they'll, they'll walk into the pharmacy or they'll walk into the administrator's office and they'll say, hi, we're from the FDA. We're here to help. And then they will issue you a 482 document, which is a notice of inspection. Then what they will do is they will ask you for a list of the things that you've compounded or dispensed for the last month or three months or six months. And they will look down that list. And if they do see hazardous drug, and that is a concern to them, they will focus on those orders that contain those drugs that they know are on the NIOSH list, especially if you're compounding those drugs from powdered API. The next test, that'll be the first test. The next test that they will do is make sure that you are acting as the 503A. So they'll cross-reference that list of prescriptions and compounds to make sure that each one of those orders has a corresponding prescription to make sure that you're practicing as a pharmacy within the triad, the patient, prescriber, pharmacist triad. So that'll be the second acid test. And the third one, it's ridiculous, but they go through this exercise because they want to establish that they have purview there. And just, and again, I'm not an attorney, I'm just a simple pharmacist, spent my mom's money well on tuition. They have jurisdiction to walk into any establishment in the United States that holds drug. So even a convenience store that's selling Tylenol, the FDA has the right to be there. But as a matter of convention, and they've been doing this since the beginning of time, I guess, is that they try to establish that the pharmacy is engaged in interstate commerce. So for all of you out there who are listening now who say, I'm a hospital, none of my patients cross state lines, believe it or not, you're still engaged in interstate commerce because you cannot tell the agency that absolutely everything on your shelf was created and made inside your home state. So if you take a syringe that's made by BD that's shipped to you from Franklin, New Jersey, you're engaged in interstate commerce. So the FDA has purview to be there. Now, how much they ratchet down on hazardous drug compounding in your facility directly depends on how much of it that you're doing. And really, quite frankly, the office that they're coming from and the individual inspector. And believe me, we maintain the largest private database of all of these 483s. We analyze it on almost on a daily basis. And this is one of those areas, even in all of our analyzation of that data, a lot of the times it doesn't have a whole lot of rhyme or reason. So I can tell you that one of the top citations for 503A pharmacies, which would be 
hospitals, physicians' offices, and private compounders is procedures designed to prevent microbial contamination are not established, written, or followed. And the rest of that starts to delve into cross-contamination and mix-ups. That's the language that they love to use. And that's when they start to refer to those highly potent drugs. And that's where you get into the deep water. I know you had a list of points you wanted to make. Where are we at? We're pretty deep into the list. I mean, I think that the folks that are struggling because that entry fee, the physical plant piece, they think is insurmountable. So it freezes them not to look at policy and procedure and staff training. Listen, you know, the fortune cookie wisdom on this is the same as it's always been. Better to light a candle rather than curse the darkness, right? Light a single candle. So for those of you that are not getting the funding, for those of you that are having trouble with things like locating the space or I have to wait for next year's capital budget to start building my pharmacy, that does not mean that you can't go through and do the hazardous drug training or the notification of employees or all the other things procedurally that have to get done, PPE has been a struggle because of the COVID pandemic. Everybody knows that. So that varies by the area of the country that you're in. So that doesn't mean that you can't create the proper, correct PPE sequencing and the proper and correct PPE training materials for when, God willing, we get back to some sort of normalcy and some sort of reliable, more reliable supply chain with those items. I have a question regarding training. So obviously, there's a certain amount of training that goes on in process or procedure for entering any clean room, right? So if you've got hazardous drugs in there, is it considerably different? Like, is it you really have to ratchet it up or not? Or would you do proper procedures? And now I'm obviously talking specifically in a compounding pharmacy and not so much in a hospital. But, you know, if you're going into your clean room, is it going to be that much different from the normal process or procedure? So absolutely. So So not to confuse folks, we make the distinction when you're talking about sterile compounding, the garb that you wear, the gowns, the gloves, the garb that you wear, we consider that garment. Mm-hmm. The PPE, the personal protective equipment that you need to go over that first layer of garbing is PPE. So there's garbing and then there's PPE. So that's a second layer. There needs to be a definitive sequencing of how you garb to get into the sterile area. And then what do you add to that garb to get into the HD area. That's why one of the time and motion things that we use most often is folks think that they get that delivery and they have to receive it, wipe it down, and immediately get it into the HD room. The economics of that, Vivian, is that every time one of your employees enters an HD compounding room, on top of the money that's spent for the garb, there's an additional, we used to say pre-pandemic, we used to say 18 to $25 of PPE gets added to that. And whether that employee is in that compounding room or in that storage room for five minutes, five seconds, or five days, they exit. All of that becomes regulated waste. So when we look at time and motion, you need to really see if that's the most effective way for your people to be moving stuff back and forth. That's why, generally speaking, unless you're a very high-volume provider, and really need a drug storage room, although it's mentioned in USP 800, we recommend that you incorporate your drug storage space, that square footage that you're going to need to keep your JIT inventory on hand, put that in the buffer. 
you're already creating a negative space. It already has all the attributes that your storage room also has to have, but you're only paying for the engineering controls in one area. So okay. we think that's a much more economic space. The other thing is that for the folks that are doing receiving, you really need to look at that process. There's a lot of language in the chapter about the use of impervious plastic to be able to take that drug from the receiving area and move it freely through your, through your facility or through your compounding business or through your office practice to get it into the HD area. So it doesn't mean that if a tray of 5-FU is delivered at 10 a.m., that by 10.05, it needs to be on the shelf in your HD room. If you contain it in an impervious plastic container, you can move it through your business in a more controlled way and a more economical way. So that's just one of the tricks that we use when we look at that whole life cycle. Again, you need to walk it from the loading dock back to the waste disposal piece. As I said, I've heard a lot about the building costs and the ramifications. But it seems to me that the financial ramifications are far larger than just a facility. So what is going to be the industry impact on compliance with 800? Is there one or is it just people are going to have to adapt? Well, I mean, I mean first, first of all, if you look at the chapter itself, if we're just talking about 800 itself and you look at it just from a sheer numbers perspective, right? There's 18 sections of the current USP 800. And from there, I looked at 11 categories inside those 18 that will directly impact spend, right? So the first one we've been talking about, facility and engineering controls, right? Mm -hmm. The second one we've already mentioned, PPE. Third one is personnel training. The requirement is that you train your employees on orientation and then annually thereafter. What folks are not doing or folks are slowly getting around to doing is things like regular spill drills, which weren't part of the routine training prior to the advent of USP 800. So that comes with an associated cost. Receiving, that process needs to be more structured and contains PPE. So the receiving costs are going to go up. Labeling, transport, disposal, even within a single building, even if you're in a medical building or you're in a single hospital, there are transport bags, there are additional labeling that has to happen. So that all comes with an associated cost, right? The compounding itself, right? That's directly related back to facility and engineering controls and the garb and all those good things. We haven't talked about the nursing part of it or the physician part of it around administration, right? Because yeah. all of these systems, and I don't, it doesn't really matter what system your hospital or your practice is using, the closed system transfer device disposables are all pretty pricey. You know, there are instances where we get complaints or we get calls from clients and they say, I just snapped a $7 connector onto a $3 drug vial. Like, does that make any sense to you? And our only reply is, A, we don't own any of the company stock and B, welcome to America. That again is something that has to, as the marketplace normalizes, and as healthcare costs are sort of globalized, all of that has to be put into the equation. The other piece of this and regular reoccurring piece of it is both for nursing, housekeeping, and pharmacy are the cost around the deactivation, the decontamination, the cleaning, and the disinfecting labor that has to go on, but also the chemicals that have to be purchased to be able to do those things. So that's another cost. And then the one cost that no one, 
absolutely no one has their arms around is now that all of this yellow bag waste is being focused on, it needs to be picked up and hauled away. And I can tell you that generally speaking, yellow bag waste is three times the cost of sharps waste to haul away. So for the folks that say, well, I'm going to take the easy way out. And if you're a patient who's getting HD, I'm going to throw absolutely everything in the yellow bag. Well, that's great for the staff member. It makes it easy. I only have to remember one pathway. But when you walk the building and you go through that pathway and the administrator sees that, they have a heart attack. And rightfully so. It's not appropriate. Because you've just increased your you've just increased your HD waste costs. Because I'm assuming it's by weight or a bit weighter. Right. It's by weight. It's yeah, this is by weight. And the other thing is that there's no historic data. I mean, since we've gotten into the discussion a couple of years now. There are people that are collecting this data, but most hospitals, most CFOs, most finance people that are in the compounding business or in just in general healthcare, they don't have their arms around this to be able to give a number. What is the PPE going to cost? And I'm not talking about the COVID factor that that exploded PPE. I'm just prior to COVID. What's the additional PPE? What is that going to cost? And how much is it going to cost me to haul away? Nobody's got their arms around that. So it's very scary. And the smaller hospitals are suffering because they don't have the kind of cash reserves that they need to accommodate this. So Congress's PPP money is burning pretty quickly. But 2022, I mean, I would imagine all of that's going away. So what are they going to do? And what about small 503? Are there small 503As who, uh, you know, independent 503As who do hazardous drugs who are also going to be struggling through this compliance? Yeah, yeah, we, our smaller customers are doing a hard ROI and whether they're doing a combination of sterile or non-sterile HD, they're looking at those costs. Most of them are forced to pass that immediately on to their Mm -hmm. patients. When you're talking about community practice and you're talking about third parties, there's not a whole lot of third party billing. So a lot of it, most of it is private pay. So they're having to pass that directly on to customers. There are other pharmacies that are looking at it as a disincentive and they're exiting the marketplace and are just sending it to the colleague down the street. Physicians' offices, I can tell you that we, you know, because we do a lot of health system work, there are small one, two, three oncology practices that are selling to health systems to sort of release themselves. They're going with more what would traditionally be thought of as an HMO model. They're jumping in the boat with the health system and becoming employees of the hospital and letting the hospital deal with it. The larger practices, like we said, we have several large practice groups. They hired us to give the pharmacist eye, even though this is not a pharmacy-only compliance problem, how do I best do this? And some of them, if you think about that practice area, that practice area is very interesting to us because in all cases, you may not need to create an ISO 7 clean room to be able to provide service. If they're willing to work Right now, currently with this 797 to work in a 12-hour window, which is what most of them do anyway, you don't need a clean room. You need a segregated compounding area. So you do need the external venting. You do need a proper exhausted biological safety cabinet, but you don't have to take on the burden of a true clean room with all of its overhead. So you can lower the bar slightly and provide service safely. So we're finding success there with those groups. But uh 
Yeah, it really, I mean, it really gets down to what we've written about in the past, Vivian, and it's when you're talking about a compounding space, whether it's sterile, whether it's non-sterile, depending on your discipline, do not buy or build more than you need, but do not get caught building less than you need because that, from a regulatory perspective, is a really bad day if you're caught short. So on that note, we should probably wrap it up, unless there's any other points you got. Nope. I think that'll give everybody enough worry and a good place to start. And I thank you for uh, you know this opportunity and we appreciate Pharma Salon. Thank you for listening. At Pharma Salon, we produce content and conferences for the compounding pharmacy industry that focuses on learning through conversation. It is our mantra that everyone's experience is worth hearing and can benefit someone else in the industry. And we're the ones to facilitate those discussions. Our next event is the Compounding Pharmacy's Grand Salon. Four days, four tracks. Regulations, inspection, preparation, and response. Quality validation and design. Environmental monitoring and leadership. Pre-recorded presentations will be released on September 20th and live sessions will be October 5th through 8th. CE credits will be offered to both pharmacists and technicians. For more information, go to www.pharmasalon/compounding. That's www.p is in Paul, H A R is in Robert, M is in Mary, A S is in Sam, A L O N is in Nancy.com/compounding.